Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. I believe we are starting a brand new series today called Political Intrigues. And welcome to the first of a three-part series. This one is located in France, I believe. Yes, basically Paris. It is the Dreyfus Affair, or about the Dreyfus Affair. Even I've heard of that one. Right. So, in brief, a French-Jewish army captain was sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, It was, without doubt, the most infamous political scandal of the 19th century. And I don't just mean Jewish scandal, but across the board. And this in a country which had its own fair share of upsets. And the Dreyfus Affair would eventually expose fault lines which split the country in two. I guess you could say similar to the 2020 election in the States. On the one hand, there was the army, the church, the nationalists. And on the other hand, the Republicans, the socialists, the intellectuals, basically left versus right, with the press being totally partisan one way or the other. None of them were in the middle. And it spilled out onto the streets of France. There were assassinations. There were hundreds of riots, mob terror, suicides, and the collapse of government. We are not going to do it justice in one session, and perhaps we will come back to some of the personalities at a later date. But I want to give the Jewish angle in it, which you might think is obvious. But the irony is that the Jews were almost not part of it. And I include in this Alfred Dreyfus himself. There were two people who were Jewish who were centrally involved, and they were Dreyfus's brother, Mathieu, and Bernard Lazare. So it would probably be true to say that a Jew may have triggered the affair and clearly made the outcome much more extreme, but was not centrally involved in all the goings on. And the affair is responsible for possibly the most famous international newspaper headline of all time, J'accuse, which means I accuse the government. So must have such a thing resonated across the entire country? Yes, I mean, it rocked all of France. But what I'd like to explore is the lead-up to the affair, which is often unknown, and the fact that 50 years later, it was alive and well during episodes of the Holocaust in Vichy, France. And the lead-up starts with the fact that towards the end of the 19th century, the French suffered a humiliating defeat in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, 
and Paris was besieged by the Germans for four months, and the French had to give up the territories of Alsace-Lorraine to the Germans. And this was followed by a corruption scandal regarding the Panama Canal, because the person who was involved in creating the canal was an individual by the name of Ferdinand de Lesseps, who had, prior to that, built the Suez Canal. But in this particular case, between 1880 and 1888, the Panama Company was in deep financial trouble. Eventually, close to half a billion francs would be lost, but de Lesseps keeps the company going, principally by bribing members of the French government to keep quiet. And when this hits the fan, it becomes the largest money corruption scandal of the 19th century. 800,000 French people lost their investments, and there were large amounts of money traced to being pocketed by politicians, financiers, and eventually the press and the Commission of Inquiry concluded that his company had been bankrupt for years, but by bribing everybody, including 150 members of parliament, he managed to keep it quiet for long enough. Now, if you're going to bribe that many people, you need middlemen. And although it's true to say that there were no Jews amongst the bribed members of parliament or on the board of de Lesseps' company, uh, there were three people, Joseph Reinach, a guy called Hertz, and another one called Aaron, who had a large hand in distributing these bribes. Reinach took care of the right wing of the bourgeois parties, and Hertz, basically the radicals, the leftists. And in the end, one blackmailed the other. Reinach was blackmailed by Hertz and committed suicide. But before his death, he gave a list of the members of parliament who had been bribed to a newspaper called La Libre Parole, which was run by Edward Drummond. It was an anti-Semitic newspaper. Why he did so was not so clear, although it appears that he wanted the newspaper to cover up his own role. Now, this story transformed the newspaper from a sort of an obscure sheet into one of the most influential newspapers of the country. What they did was publish morning by morning in small installments the list of culprits, and hundreds of politicians lived on tenterhooks for months. And obviously what the scandal showed was that the middlemen between the business sector and the state contained many Jews and it allowed the anti-Semitic press to emerge as a strong force in France and ultimately who is responsible for this? The Jews themselves, the, the Jewish businessmen who were involved in this enterprise. So the, the Panama scandal leaves behind it two legacies. The first is a strong suspicion of Jews, especially Jews in financial areas. And the second is a suspicion of the Republic, of Parliament, the banks.
I just wanted to remind you that we're talking about the Dreyfus affair in this yes. one. <laughs> so this is all an introduction to where France stood when we get to 1894. It's, it follows on from this. And as I say, it's often overlooked and should not be. The Dreyfus story itself takes a number of twists and turns, but it's relatively simple. In September of 1894, French military intelligence was handed a note by the maid that they had hired to spy inside the German embassy in Paris. And this note, which later became known as Le Bordereau, was addressed to the military attaché of the German embassy, and it promised confidential information about France's newly developed artillery piece, which meant that somebody high up in the army was selling classified information to the enemy that was threatening France's national security. This information is brought to the Minister of War, General Mercier, who starts a secret investigation. But because it was secret, the investigation had to rely to quite a large degree on guesswork. And they came up with a suspect, an artillery officer called Alfred Dreyfus, who was the only and the first Jewish member of France's military general staff. And he was the ideal culprit, not only because he was Jewish, but because he was from Alsace. And after that Franco-Prussian war in 1870, he was therefore pegged as a more likely traitor. Alsace was now German. It's situated along the German border. And therefore, this inquiry is driven uh, by bigotry. The only proof the army has is this letter. <clears throat> and of course, what they need to do is match handwritings which brings Major Armand Dupaty de Clam into the picture. He claimed to be an expert in graphology, and he established that the handwriting was indeed Dreyfus's, although subsequently uh, real graphologists would find significant flaws in that claim. Mercier now summons Captain Dreyfus in the hopes of forcing a confession out of him. He even suggested that Dreyfus commit suicide and gave him a revolver to do so. <coughs> but Dreyfus refused because he said, I want to prove my innocence. He is put in solitary confinement illegally, where Dupati interrogates him basically day and night in order to get a confession, but Dreyfus said nothing, because, as we will see, he was completely innocent. Dreyfus's wife is only informed of her husband's arrest when their apartment is raided in search of evidence, but is ordered to remain silent. The story, however, becomes public on October the 29th, when this same anti-Semitic newspaper that published the names of the members of parliament in the Panama Canal scandal had in bold on their front page the treason of the Jew Dreyfus. And the article was followed by many others 
in other anti-Semitic newspapers like Le Petit Journal and uh, La Croix, which is a, a church newspaper, which basically spewed their hatred in a campaign aimed at Dreyfus. And this newspaper owner was the co-founder of the Anti-Semitic League of France. Well, was that a thing? It was a very real thing. It was an anti-Semitic open movement. You could sign up to it. Members of parliament did in a democratic country. Wow. I mean, if they, they had no evidence, no real evidence, then surely that would have come out by trial. Yeah? So his was a military trial, which means it's completely behind closed doors. The public had no access and could not hear how little evidence the army had. But of course, this fuels all sorts of rumours about Dreyfus, especially in the press. And interestingly, as we now know, at the beginning, the trial favoured Dreyfus because they couldn't confirm that it was his handwriting, nor could they find a motive. Uh, his superiors spoke highly of him and his patriotism. Nevertheless, nevertheless, on December the 22nd, all seven judges convicted Alfred Dreyfus of treason, committing treason with a foreign power, and sentenced him to life imprisonment and military degradation. And the only reason he isn't sentenced to death is because it was abolished for political crimes in 1848. And anti-Semitism reaches a new peak in France. Bearing in mind, as we mentioned, France has unexpectedly lost the war to Germany 20 years earlier, along with parts of its country, and they'd spent 20 years looking for army traitors. I find it fascinating that, as you mentioned earlier, the inquiry was clearly driven by bigotry, and they might never actually plug that leak if, if they yep. almost... Okay, yep, hang on in there. <laughs> um, in January 1895... Dreyfus's badges and rank was torn off his jacket at the École Militaire in Paris, in public, and he screams, you know, soldat en déshonneur and innocent, there's an innocent person being um, dishonored, I guess. Vive la France, vive l'armée, he's a patriot. His sword is broken in two and there's a mob outside screaming for his blood. And General Mercier ordered that the penal colony of Devil's Island in, or just off French Guiana, be reopened, it's just off the South American coast, because the living conditions of French prisons were considered too soft. He is the only prisoner on this island, and he becomes sick. He has fevers, they get progressively worse. He is chained to his bed. And he's tormented by the heat and by, you know, the mosquitoes and the, the conditions out there. And that would have eventually been the end of his life if it wasn't for his brother, Mathieu, who was convinced that Dreyfus was innocent and determined to free him. He becomes the leader of those who support the cause known as the Dreyfusard. But you have to realise that the vast majority of France is strongly anti-Dreyfusard and the role that Mathieu took must seem just sort of, you know, an impossibility. 
he's taking on every branch of France, you know, the law, the army, the press. And, you know, at this point, we would see the affair as basically pure anti-Semitism. But it would soon change into something much bigger. So Mathieu Dreyfus convinces some of the moderates in Parliament, some intellectuals, to at least look into the case. And unexpectedly, one of those moderates was the new head of French military intelligence, Georges Picard, who had followed the Dreyfus affair from the onset, but his new position allowed him access to the evidence, or basically the lack of evidence. So he started his own investigation without anybody knowing about this. And he came up with a new and basically obvious suspect, a guy called Major Esterhazy. The French military intelligence had recently caught this major corresponding with the German military. That's one thing. Secondly, Picard compared his handwriting to the original note and found that they were basically the same. Thirdly, uh, Esterhazy, as opposed to Dreyfus, had the necessary rank to access the information about these particular artillery pieces. And finally, he had motive. He was crippled with debt. So, you know, it's, it's obvious who the culprit is. And Picard is certain now that Dreyfus is innocent. He brings his evidence to his superiors and they simply dismiss it out of hand. The case is closed. The army could not admit that they had been wrong. And in fact, they go even further than that. They are scared of further scrutiny. And they asked one of their own, a guy called Major Henry, to come up with more evidence. But of course, Henry found nothing. And now that he is worried that Dreyfus might be found innocent, he forges a document that further incriminates Dreyfus and the military therefore protect Esterhazy and you know prosecute Picard or persecute him anyway and they transfer him to Tunisia and put him under investigation. Um, the one thing they could not do was cover this all up completely and Dreyfus's family published a copy of the original note that Dreyfus was supposed to have written and all of Picard's accusation against the uh, military cover-up. And they expose the controversy to the public and the facts for the first time. And now uh, Mathieu Dreyfus, who's been fighting alone until now, is joined by some of the most prominent intellectuals, journalists, artists, Lazare, who we mentioned earlier, the painter Claude Monet, the author Émile Zola, Proust, the socialist leader Jean Jaurès, all of them want one thing. They want a retrial. And in many ways, you could say that the Dreyfus investigation has now become l'affaire Dreyfus. At the very beginning of 1898, Esterhazy is put on trial for the accusation that has been made against him. And, you know, if you were to call his trial a sham, it would be an understatement. Once again, it's conducted by the military and once again, therefore, behind closed doors. 
And Esterhazy's mistress publishes letters showing that he has violently expressed his hatred for France and his contempt for the French army, but he is acquitted. And there are one and a half thousand people out there to cheer him when he leaves. And there were violent anti-Semitic riots all over France. But there is a certain momentum amongst moderates. Um, they saw the trial as a farce and they are now seeing a violation of the fundamental principles of democracy. So there is a middle ground at this point, and they are uneasy about things being brushed under the carpet. At this point, I doubt it's any more because of anti-Semitism, rather just saving face. Uh, yes, correct. The army at this point in time, that is, it's very much the case. And it is now that Emile Zola, who's a famous author, publishes a letter entitled, with the famous words, J'accuse. It's the full front page of the newspaper. Four and a half thousand words addressed to the president of France and is a summary of the affair and all those that had conspired against Dreyfus. And it was a bombshell. They sold 300,000 copies in one day, which is 10 times more than the usual distribution of the paper. And this basically makes a retrial inevitable. Um, Zola is sentenced to a year in prison <laughs> for having basically libeled all these ranking members of the army. So no freedom of speech back then. Basically. But beyond that, I mean, he suffered uh, much more than that. Um, harassment, violence. He, he fled to exile in England. And when he came back, uh, he was poisoned by an extremist and he died so that was you know one of the first victims there would be a number and picard was also found guilty because of course it was he who gave over the evidence of that original note to the dreyfus family and he's put in prison so anti-semitism in france is now reaching dangerous proportions and france's reputation internationally is now in the dumps. You have newspapers across the Western world who originally were all on the side of anti-Dreyfus. They are now saying, this is ridiculous. There was a mistrial and something has to be done. As it was put by, I think, Hannah Arendt, the wrong done to a single Jew in France drew a more vehement response from the rest of the world than the persecution of Jews during the 1930s in Germany. You know, the, the Western world happily attended the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. So you now have the army, as you say, in a very difficult position. And the Minister of War, Kavanyak, is determined to put an end to the affair by proving that Dreyfus is guilty. He's convinced that that is the case. He reopens the investigation but the officer that he places in charge of the investigation notices that the letter of evidence, the second one, the one that was faked by Major Henry, um, which was a forgery, actually was a combination of different letters sort of glued together almost. And he shows this to the Minister of War, who despite being absolutely convinced of Dreyfus's guilt, which is sort of mind-boggling, but that was the mindset in the army, 
he nevertheless had the decency to act on the discovery. Surprising. A man of honour, but just of a particular mindset, of an army mindset. And after an hour of questioning by Cavagnac himself, Henry broke down and admitted his guilt, that he'd forged that second letter. Which means that the strongest evidence that the military had against Dreyfus has now been discredited. Henry is put in prison. He kills himself the next day. Although the result is that he now becomes a martyr amongst the anti-Dreyfusards. So you say at this stage it would be absurd not to acquit Dreyfus. I mean, all the original evidence was clearly manufactured. There's now a logical candidate for the crime. So there's not even a shred of evidence against Dreyfus now. Yep, it's absurd. But he is not acquitted for two reasons. Anti-Semitism which made him the victim in the first place, the easy victim. And it's the fact that the main parties could not afford to be wrong. They would lose power. It's not just within the army, but the whole, the, you know, the nationalists within the country, they stood to lose their grip on power. And they actually did when the dust settled. Uh, but 50 years later, they would be involved in Vichy France when it came back under the nationalist movement. So the country is now on the brink of unarmed civil war, all because of one Jew. And there's an enormous irony to this because he is unaware of what's going on. He's on a, an island in the middle of nowhere, completely cut off from humanity. So... The Dreyfusards bring their case to the French Supreme Court to ask for a retrial. And the Supreme Court has basically no choice and allows that to happen. But the retrial is going to take place in a military court again. A couple of days later, Dreyfus is now brought back home. And he's astonished to find the proportions that the Dreyfus affair has now taken on, uh, that so many people have defended him and that so many hated him. Now, his lawyers are confident of an acquittal because just a few days before his second trial, Esther Hazy, the guy who is the obvious culprit and candidate, admitted that he wrote the original note to the German military attaché in the embassy about the artillery piece, which started the whole thing off. And he then flees to England to escape possible arrest in France. Why would he do that? Why would he admit it? As far as I'm aware, it's because his gambling debts were being paid off, uh-huh. <laughs> which were significant. So there is this trial, and there's an atmosphere of extreme tension the city is put under police, possibly military siege, in fear of massive riots, and the Jews across France are frightened for the outcome, for their future. I suppose either way the Jews lose. Yes, it would not have been pretty either way, correct. Mm. And this is 1898. This is 110 years after they've been emancipated in a country where, where Jews are allowed into any area of life, and suddenly everything is possibly going to change. And these things took place. Mobs who were informed by the army of location preyed on Jewish neighborhoods. They attacked individuals associated with the cause. 
outbursts of violence became more and more common, one of Dreyfus's lawyers was shot. And cries of death to the Jews was heard all over the country. On the same day, basically at the same time, mobs created riots in Lyon, Bordeaux, Marseille, orchestrated by the army. And this was a time of real fear for the Jews. In fact, there's a historian, Jules Isaac, who was the son of an army officer and he knew what the army conditions were. And he wrote, La France semblait revenue au temps des guerres de religion, which means France seems to have returned to the times of religious wars. And the larger the Jewish community in the city, the more likely the riots to occur. One place where there were three continuous days of rioting earlier, but within the context of this year, was Algeria, uh, which was French, and whole streets of Jewish shops were burnt down. And there is a letter that somebody in the sort of middle ground writes that, you know, I'm not Jewish and the super juif, but no one should be mis à l'index, should be put on a list pour un prochain pillage for the next uh, riot just because they are Jewish. And this is foreshadowing what would take place in 1942. So during the trial, the military has no evidence against Dreyfus. First letter was written by Esterhazy. The second letter was a fake. Yet the judges found Dreyfus guilty of treason and he's sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's insane. Yes, I agree. But that's the case. Now, Dreyfus appeals the verdict and not wanting to go to a third trial, the prime minister proposed a pardon to Dreyfus if he accepts his guilt. And he is exhausted, literally, and has spent so long away from his family that he accepts. So he accepts to agree to the fact that he actually is guilty. Then what excuse could the government have for pardoning him then? It's almost a vicious cycle. Yes, the interesting thing is, without going into it, the second trial came to the conclusion that he's guilty under extenuating circumstances, which makes absolutely (laughs) no sense. I mean, the whole thing is just, you know, it's it's wordplay. And, you know, you see about Dreyfus that he's in the middle of things, but sort of accidentally. He's he's not the hero. I mean, you can't blame him. He just happens to be in the centre of things as they are happening around him almost it became much bigger than him though much and therefore at the end of 1899 Dreyfus is finally released five years into this whole affair and the prime minister signs a bill which granted amnesty to all the parties involved in the Dreyfus affair excluding Alfred Dreyfus himself so it now exonerates Zola and Picard but of course, it also exonerates Esterhazy, Dupati, and everybody else. <laughs> Four years later, 1903, the president of the Socialist Party, Jean Jaurès, reopens the Dreyfus case in a speech in Parliament. He mentions all the sort of the lies that have plagued the Dreyfus case and accuses the military of colluding against Dreyfus. The Supreme Court is asked to have another look at the case, and eventually in 1906, which is more than a decade after his original guilty verdict, it unanimously found Alfred Dreyfus not guilty. 
Jaurès himself would eventually be assassinated. So it's difficult to say about this, you know, all's well that ends well. Dreyfus is reinstated into the army. He's now given, he's promoted to the rank of a major. Really, he should have been a colonel by now, but uh, it's too lengthy uh, an issue to go into. Picard is also reinstated and eventually becomes the minister of war. But a year later, Dreyfus retires because, you know, he's suffering from chronic fatigue. Yet he and his son volunteered during World War I to defend the country that had betrayed them. He was still a patriot. I think he served in Verdun. And two of his nephews, one of which is Mathieu Dreyfus's son, also took part in trench warfare in World War I and were eventually killed. And the case of Dreyfus was never really settled. His reinstatement into the army was not recognized by many, so that as late as 1908, when the body of Emile Zola was transferred to the Pantheon, Dreyfus was openly attacked on the streets and a Paris court acquitted his assailant because France never got over it. And they never celebrated his exoneration because he had dragged France through the mud for a decade. It wasn't his fault, but he was the cause. And ultimately what swung it wasn't the Jews or international reaction or even the truth. It was the realization that the French Republic was at stake. Clemenceau, who was twice the prime minister and was owner of the newspaper that published Zola's Jacques article, wrote, and I quote, Isn't it ironic that men should have stormed the Bastille, guillotined their king and promoted a major revolution only to discover in the end that it had become impossible to get a man tried in accordance with the law. It was really the middle ground that swung things politically. And then, 40 years later, the right, the nationalists, the church, the anti-Semites were given the chance to get back into power at an extreme level. Pétain, who was on the general staff of the military between 1895 and 1899, which in itself tells you that he was anti-Dreyfusard, he sort of led Vichy France. Charles Morat, who was a strident anti-Dreyfusard during the affair, was a supporter of Vichy and was sentenced to life imprisonment after World War II. And then there is Charles Dupati de Clam, who was the commissioner general for Jewish affairs in the Vichy government and the son of the original quote-unquote graphologist and interrogator of Dreyfus, which basically means that Hitler's propaganda spoke in a language familiar to many in France. And perhaps very briefly, as an international look, in England, the Times, which was initially anti-Dreyfusard, changed its mind in 1898 and printed an entire page in which they asked, when were the French going to admit to the truth, which was known everywhere else in the world? Well, that was slightly longer than usual, but I guess we had to do justice to such an yes. weird part of our history. It really is true that sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. Yep. Do we know where he's buried? Yes, in the uh, Montparnasse Cemetery, one of the four major cemeteries in Paris, which is a non-Jewish cemetery. There is a small section where there are Jews, and his Matseva actually has Hebrew as well as French on it. Have you seen it? Yes. Well, 
yes. I believe, or Mid- Literally in the middle of Paris and not far from the place where he was both degraded and reinstated. So was this mentioned with the more recent Rabashkin's tale? Was this at all mentioned in regard to a Jew being uh, unfairly trialed? Obviously very different. It's very different. It's very, <laughs> I mean, this is a case where there was literally from beginning to end, the entire thing was fabricated. Fabric, yeah. There, there was a plea bargain. You know, it's a different story altogether. And this cut across French society with people Almost taking a civil side. war. Yeah. Yeah. And can I just compliment you on your French accent, which is impeccable. Right. Working on it. <laughs> yes. yes. Thank right. you very much. That brings episode one of Political Intrigues to an end um, out of three. Looking forward to see you again next week. And um, the questions are coming into podcast at jle.org.uk. Rabbi Hirsch will try and respond to them when he has the time. And thank you very much. <laughs>